Okay, uh, I don't. I just realized I don't have like a fun intro plan for this episode. So no, I didn't think about one either. I could have done like a diary entry or, or something where it's like, hey, wait. okay, hold on. Wait, what's the day? August twenty seventh. August twenty twenty three. I August saw a pretty girl across the street and became insanely obsessed with her, and then decided now let's to all murder do our diary entries at the same time for her love and affection. August twenty seventh, twenty twenty three. I saw Mariah. As she was getting food from Trader Joe's, she looked beautiful. August twenty seventh, that twenty twenty. I like the the dairy I free cream cheese that she got. Movie theater. I'm going to <laughs> invite Mariah porn. to an adult movie theater. I think with it would Miles. be cool to bring someone here. I with think me. the three of us together. They would didn't really have enjoy- movies though. <laughs> Boys and girls. Whoa. In those in between. And girls. We are all inclusive here. This Um, is just for the boys. Yes. This is a he like me for real movie. Yeah. Today, Mariah, you are one of the boys. I am one of the boys. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the 1976 critically acclaimed Taxi Driver. But Mm -hmm. if you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome. Uh, Second of all, before we jump in, we'd like to talk about some other movies that we've seen recently. Typically, not at all. All related to the vibe of the episode, and uh, uh, I'll you know what actually I'll kick us off. You kick us off. I'll I was just off. gonna say if you guys could uh, jump to the end and get the information for my Kickstarter for my new movie <laughs> called Uber Driver. It's gonna be <laughs> Taxi Driver, but modern. Um, so a movie that I watched recently with Stefan mm-hmm. was Walk the Line from 2005. It is a biopic about Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, we love Johnny Cash. We love Johnny Cash. That being said. That being said, it, it kind of sucked. Yes. Um, Damn. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that Johnny Cash is a very complex person and has mm-hmm. such insane stories and insane life story and is just a very fascinating character. And all that this film focused on was like the first five years where he was really gaining success and struggling with drug addiction, which of course is like an interesting aspect yeah. of his life and important, obviously, because he overcame that. And, you know, met his second wife, who he stayed with until Mm -hmm. she passed away in 2003. But there's so much more to him that I feel like they really wasted a lot of potential. And then I was really surprised to learn that Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for her performance. Yeah. Here's the thing. No shade against Reese Witherspoon, but I didn't think she was that good in it. And she also certainly did not sound like June Carter Cash at all either. Everyone raved about how, like, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon just, like, became them. And I'm like... And Maybe because we love him too much and we we know him so well. But I'm like, no. I felt like I was just watching a biopic or like just a fictional story of a musician. I didn't feel like I was watching Johnny Cash. No. And I, like Mariah said, like it boiled his life down to this like romance and drug thing, which was not at all what I would say a majority of his career was. I mean, at least the thing that I find very interesting is that so he's known as the man in black, if you're mm. not aware. And his whole thing is that he wore black to represent those who didn't have a voice, yeah. those who couldn't read, those who were under the poverty line, mm-hmm. those who were incarcerated. And they kind of just make a joke of the fact that he wears black when it was a very big deal for him and part of his like philosophical 
yeah. like values. Yeah, they, they don't cover kind of like up. his his motivations for his art at all in the movie. Yeah, and he also something that I find very interesting is that like later on in life, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix called Tricky Dick and the Man in Black, which is phenomenal. And it's about how he straddled the line between getting involved in politics and staying out of politics because he was quite liberal in some ways and quite conservative in other ways. Mm-hmm insanely fascinating and how he felt the struggle to like whether to say something or whether to not say anything and how nixon was like trying to pull him into the spotlight to like support him and the pressure that he felt from that nixon (laughs) yeah nixon um but there's like a bunch of stuff like that relating to his life that's really interesting and they just didn't even touch on it at all no and uh it was just kind of disappointing yes damn anyway that's my little rant about walk the line (laughs) we also watched a movie called the pride of jesse hallam which stars Johnny Cash. Um, we run a Johnny Cash. Yeah, we, right, we, so we watched right. a Johnny Cash movie where he is a father of a daughter who has some serious medical condition that I don't think scoliosis. They, it was a scoliosis, and so he has to take her into town to see treatment. But because he lives in a small town his whole life, he doesn't know how to read. So he's struggling to learn how to read, and also his son doesn't really know how to read, and he's in school and he's struggling trying to learn how to read. It had a lot of potential, but never realized it. There's this guy, Salvatore Gallucci, my man, Salvatore Gallucci, probably my Gallucci. favorite Salvatore Gallucci movie, and the only <laughs> Salvatore Gallucci movie. Um, but he's in it, and he's like, I'm Italian. I had to learn English. Like, I'll help you. My daughter works at the school, and he takes lessons, and then he learns you know, to read, and him and his son do it together. Like, whatever. It's kind of basic. I, I think there's a lot of potential, but Johnny Cash actually kind of holds his own as an actor, to be completely honest. There were some moments that I was very impressed with his yeah. acting, which is the same. We mentioned this movie last year, Murder in Coweta County. He kind of shocked us with like his acting ability, and it was the mm-hmm. same thing for this. It was like, damn, he's actually, yeah. like, I believed that. Some I of bought his, that. like, micro expressions stuff are really good when he, when he talks and acts. But that's it for Johnny Cash. Miles, what have you watched? I recently watched uh, the new... Ba, 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 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm, right. Uh, I saw your review one. on Letterboxd. Yeah, the animated one with not Seth Rogen. No, not Haunted Mansion. Haunted Mansion was funny. <laughs> Boys, give me your best Seth Rogen laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. In the very beginning of the movie, there's a bit with Seth Rogen sitting in a chair and he's like, hey, welcome to the oh. movie theater. Thanks for seeing the movie. Body, body, body. He's like barely in it, man. I th- he's like directed it, right? Or wrote it or something? I guess so, yeah. He was a big part of writing it. But it was good. It did the teenager part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles very well. Right. They felt like teenagers. They used slang properly. At no point was hey, I like, nice. oh, they're being cringy when they say yeah. sus. There is, do they say sus? They do the say sus, but, <laughs> but they say sus the same way like we would uh, say sus. Like us, oh, sus. So it doesn't or feel hip. It or doesn't hip. feel bad. I'm hip. They they at one point they say Donnie has no riz, and I was like, you're right, he doesn't. <laughs> wow. He has no riz. Wow. Uh, at one point they do be cringy, but it's like cringiness to show that they are cringy turtles that don't really know how to be human. Mm-hmm. No. So it works. Huh. The animation was really good. We're, this, we're in our animation revolution of, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know if they've made a name for it yet, where it's like low frame rate. Yeah. The, the Spider-Verse inspired like animation style. I think it's just like heavily comic book. Yeah. Like thick lines yeah. and vivid colors. Yeah. 
Um, but like a lot of movies are doing that now. Puss in Boots, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Mitchell's on the like Machines. It. I like it. Yeah, I think it's cool. At some point, it'll become tired, just like any new movement, but yeah. cool. But we all watched something together. Not together, but we watched. We all watched the mm. same movie. Yeah. And that was... Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. And uh, again, if you're new here, what we like to do is just do a little summary for you. So in case it's been a while since you've seen it, or perhaps you haven't seen it, uh, we like to just kind of give you a rundown of the film before we jump in and talk about it. So you're not going, huh? What? When was that? Who's that again? So uh, That's my job. I do that. Despite (laughs) having seen the movie, that's my job. Uh, So, Miles, you want to start us off with the summary of Martin Scorsese's 1976 Taxi Driver. All right, we open up this boy, my sweet boy, Travis. Uh, Travis. Wow. Dickle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he's um, the fucking guy. He's... Oh, bro, don't do this again. Are you talking again. about the actor? Yeah. Don't do this again. He's a really young version of oh. De Niro, Robert De Niro. Yeah. yeah, there you go. He was looking good when he was younger. I've only ever known him as old man. But anyway... Robert De Niro's character, Travis. Incredible. Incredible. Sorry. He uh, wants to get a job as a taxi driver because he wants long hours. He wants something to do. He needs something mm-hmm. to... He's an insomniac. Yeah, he can't sleep. I don't... Was he doing this so that he could sleep or so that he would just have something to do while he's awake? I think something to do while he's awake. Yeah, I think there's something to do while he's awake. Yeah. Anyway, he becomes a taxi driver. He's driving around and eventually he sees this girl... And he's like, whoa, holy shit, I want her. Hmm. So he stalks her and finds out where she works and stalks her at work. And then eventually goes in and very aggressively gets her to go on a date with him. And her name is Betsy. And she works uh, campaigning for Palantine, who is a senator who's running for president. Right. So... He ends up taking Betsy to a beautiful little movie date mm-hmm. at an adult movie theater, like a weirdo. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't know that you wouldn't like that kind of movie. Give me another chance. Give me another chance, please. I thought all girls liked porno theater. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't caught on yet, our boy Travis is a little... Socially inept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just a little bit. Very socially inept. He has trouble talking to pretty much every other character mm. besides... Some other taxi driver friends he has. Even then, it's kind of weird. Yeah. But uh, he gets obsessed with her. He ends up calling her a bunch, leaving her flowers, doing all this and that. Goes to the campaign place again and ends up getting kicked out. And then he's driving around his little taxi with some other people. Well, one other dude. And he's like, whoa, 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 buddy. I didn't tell you to stop the cab fare. How about you keep it running while I tell you that my wife is having sex with somebody. I'm so scared to see how far he takes us. He, this is the director, by the way, says the oh, he knows. word. We didn't know if you knew that that was Scorsese. Yeah, yeah I, I think. Well, Isa told me. Isa told me that it was. Oh. You watched it with Isa? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, cute, cute date night? Cool, Isa. Very nice. cute de- date Same night. Same for us. Yeah. Um. Just Hi, sidebar. Thanks, thanks for uh, listening. Yeah, thanks, Isa. I'm gonna fucking kill my wife. Do you know what a 45 Mac is? It 30, 
44. 44. 44 Magnum does to a woman's face what it does to their other parts. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to say it. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, and he goes, whoa, that's kind of fucked up. I'm go. That just happened. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Ooh, uh-oh. Tell all randoms. And then he goes and buys a 45 Magnum, 44 mm-hmm. Magnum, including three other guns. A uh, snub nose, thirty-eight, thirty-eight, a, a Walther P thirty, uh, P thirty-eight. No, P. What is it? P two thirty. I forget. It's the James Bond gun. Yeah, he buys four guns and two holsters, and then mm-hmm. you see a montage That's of a, whoa, 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 buddy. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is now your zone. Yeah. Now Travis, armed with life's greatest therapy, guns. <laughs> He starts practicing to use his new pharmacy-prescribed guns on evildoers. He attends Palantine's rallies to scope out security. I mean, to become part of the security, right? Wink, wink. He shoots a guy robbing a convenience store one night and keeps running into Iris, the 12-year-old sex worker who he ran into much earlier in the movie because she ran into his cab and then was pulled out by Sport. Sport slash Matthew. Are we cool with Pimp? Are we... A pimp okay she he, he's her pimp and so he sees this girl again and he's like iris i'm gonna save this girl so he meets with her twice and he tries to persuade her to leave you know her profession and she's kind of like eh, it doesn't really work so he decides he's gonna mail her some money and then try to shoot palantine so he shows up to palantine's rally with a sick new cut sick new mm-hmm, fade mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No and luck. uh he screws up and he runs away and so he decides you know what? I'm going to go to Iris's apartment place where, you know, they do all their deeds and I'm just going to kill everyone. So he shows up, he gets into a shootout with the pimp played by Harvey Keitel and his co- colleagues and Mr. Travis gets shot in the neck. He gets shot in the shoulder and he takes a nice little rest on the couch. And then we get this lovely top down shot yeah. of the apartment as if we are from God's eye, or if we are playing Hotline Miami, that's a joke for the gamers out Good there. Good Hotline Miami reference. Yeah. And then it's revealed that Travis went into a coma, and meantime, Iris returned to her family, and Travis is being heralded as a hero, and then we catch up with him. His hair's grown back. He's still a taxi driver. He's chilling. One night, Betsy shows up. She gets in his cab, and they talk, and like they're kind of skipping on the surface of rehashing their in-quotes relationship like, I guess she's checking up with, I don't know, but he checks her off at her stop and she's like, oh, Travis. And he's like, nah, and he leaves. And then as he's leaving, something agitates him in the rearview mirror and he goes, oh, and he starts tweaking again and the movie ends. And that's Taxi Driver. And that's Taxi Driver. Thank you both for that summary. And uh, without further ado, I think we will uh, jump on into it. This obviously is a Scorsese film. Mm-hmm. This was really the one that extremely launched his career, but- before his name was attached to it, we have a young little writer named Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader. Who we will focus on first. Mm-hmm. So screenwriter Paul Schrader had just written Yakuza, which was released in oh. 1974 with his brother Leonard, and it sold for a whopping three. Leonard? Bazinga? Bazinga? <laughs> Le- Leonard? Leonard? <laughs> I was so confused. Um, for $325,000, which was insane at the time. It was a huge bidding war for this script. That's huge for yeah. the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so it really put him on the map. And at that point, he was doing film criticism, but he really wanted to get into screenwriting. So after the sale of Yakuza, he was able to kind of do that. 
And then he began to write about a lonely taxi driver in New York, actually with Jeff Bridges in mind for the role. Interesting. He used Arthur Bremer as inspiration, who is a man that attempted to assassinate the politician George Wallace in 1972 and left George Wallace paralyzed. Okay. Also, if you look into George Wallace, fuck George Wallace. He's the one who said segregation now, segregation forever. That guy. shot him. (laughs) Well, he he was shot. He just was paralyzed. Should have finished the job. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, I don't really follow politics. So Arthur Bremer... In 1973, part of his diaries were released in a book called An Assassin's Diaries, and they were accessible to the public. So Schrader used that as inspiration. There was also the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford by Manson family member Lynette Squeaky Fromm. And so that specifically inspired the part of the film where Travis doesn't really attempt to assassinate, and then eventually he gets hailed as a hero. Because Lynette from basically, she went on the cover of Time or Newsweek or something after the at- attempted assassination. And basically, she just didn't load the gun correctly. So it just like didn't mm. shoot. She got like real close and they were like, ah, she's got a gun. And then they like push her down. And like, that was it. Oh, okay. Hmm. Anyway, uh, but more famously, Paul Schrader used his own personal life as inspiration. Mm-hmm. In a Hollywood Reporter article that I'll be linking, which is phenomenal. It's like interviews with Schrader... De Niro, Scorsese, and the producers. Trader said, I had a series of things falling apart. A breakdown of my marriage, a dispute with the AFI, I lost my reviewing job, I didn't have any money, and I took to drifting, more or less living in my car, drinking a lot, fantasizing. The Pussycat Theater in LA would be open all night long, and I'd go there to sleep. Between the drinking and the morbid thinking and the pornography, I went to the emergency room with a bleeding ulcer. I was about 27. And when I was in the hospital, I realized I hadn't spoken to anyone in almost a month. So that's when the metaphor of the taxi cab occurred to me. This metal coffin that moves through the city with this kid trapped in it who seems to be in the middle of society, but is in fact all alone. I knew if I didn't write about this character, I was going to start to become him, if I hadn't already. So after I got out of the hospital, I crashed at an ex-girlfriend's place and I wrote continuously. The first draft was maybe 60 pages and I started the next draft immediately and it took less than two weeks. I sent it to a couple of friends in LA, but basically there was no one to show it to until a few years later. I was interviewing Brian De Palma, and we sort of hit it off, and I said, you know, I wrote a script, and he said, okay, I'll read it. So Brian De Palma, the man Mm. who did not direct this movie, (laughs) uh, he read it, really liked it, but he just didn't feel like it was quite his style, but he gave it to the producing partners and husband and wife, Michael and Julie Phillips, and they were interested. So they decided to option it, and Scorsese, who was friends with De Palma, got his hands on it and immediately was like, please, 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 I have to. He had said that he always wanted to create a film that kind of felt like a dream. He's like, this, mm. this is it. But the Phillips weren't so sure because Mean Streets, which yeah. was kind of like Scorsese's big first thing, it hadn't come out yet. And this was around 1972 that this was happening. And all they had seen from Scorsese was a film called Boxcar Bertha, which is like an exploitation mm-hmm. film that he had done for mm-hmm. Roger Corman. But then when they did see a rough cut of Mean Streets in 1972, they both were like, yes. He's our man. And this De Niro guy, him too. Uh, however, no studio bit. It wasn't until De Niro won his Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1975 that things like really started picking up. So they were making headway, but like not enough. Mm-hmm. But after the success of Mean Streets and then an Oscar, they were like, all right, cool. So eventually Columbia Pictures signed on with a $1.9 million budget, which is about $10.8 million today. 
this was considered low budget. And really yes. the main reason they got it to work is because everyone took a pay cut. De Niro made $35,000. And even after winning his Oscar, he could have basically asked for more. But he's like, I'm going to stick to my promise and do this really low pay. Wait, you, you get to ask for more money after winning an Oscar? Well, I mean, his demand went up. Oh. So uh, Scorsese made 65000 and Paul Schrader got 30000 so we've got the green light from Columbia. We've got De Niro. We got an incredibly sad, pathetic man script. Yes. But we need to cast the other roles. We need someone to play the taxi cab. Someone needs to be the cab. Uh-huh. We need Bumblebee. Is Bumblebee <laughs> in this movie? Yeah, I'll get to that later. Okay, cool. So Scorsese knew Harvey Keitel from Mean Streets mm. and the film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And he offered him the role of the campaign worker who's the friend of Betsy, mm. but Harvey Keitel read it and he's like, can I please play the pimp? Even though in the script, the pimp had like five lines and was black. All right. You know, Tropic Thunder, you can, you know, <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. But after Keitel was like, can I please play this role? And Columbia was like, hey, if Travis kills more than one black person, we might have like a riot. Oh, so like maybe yeah. can we maybe maybe can we change that? I was actually because I was actually gonna say the pimp being black would make sense because there's like the subtext of the the racism. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that that would kind of compound his anger more. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but Columbia didn't want to be liable for that, so they're like, "Can we please?" And they were like, "Well, Kaitel wants to play it anyway, so sure." Okay, hold on. How many times have movies actually caused riots? Uh, I remember like when we covered like Do the Right Thing and stuff. All these movie studios are like. They're going to riot. And it's always about like race stuff. I'm like, has there ever been like a riot? None I that I know like... of. There probably has been. Yeah. We don't need to look this up. We can figure this out some other time. But I'm like, all these studios are like, oh my God, they're going to riot in the theaters. It's like, when? Yeah. Anyway, so Harvey Keitel, when he did kind of land the role that he wanted, he went out and approached pimps and asked them questions and interviewed them, followed them around in preparation in... Research. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like this guy was researching. (laughs) And in uh, an interview that he did for The Hollywood Reporter, which actually he did at my school, and I was there when he was talking about Mm. this, he, so I think he was like following around this like one pimp and then went to go meet like the head honcho pimp and he like wired himself up. The pimp's pimp. Yeah. He wired himself up with like a microphone. Holy shit. And the guy was like, if you wear that wire, you're going to actually be killed. Like, don't do that. I saw a transcript of their conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So he took it like really seriously. Damn. That sounds like a fed. Well, was going to wear a wire. That sounds like a fed cover up. Like, oh, I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm researching. I'm wearing a, ri- a wire for my role. <laughs> yeah. All you think right. he learned Narc. how to pimp slap? <laughs> he doesn't slap in the movies. So he's probably not. No. No, anyway. He grabs. Next up, we're going to talk about Jodie Foster, who plays. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, who plays the 12-year-old Iris. Really? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Are you kidding yes. me? You didn't... That's she's like one of the she's a child. She she's sounds child. and looks the same. No, she doesn't. She does sound she sounds exactly the same. The same. She, she's got the voice and she's like... Huh. So Scorsese had also worked with Jodie Foster before in the film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And he approached Foster's mother and explained what the role would be. And she went, you're absolutely insane. Certifiably insane. Uh-uh. But then he met with her, gave her the script, they read it, and were like, okay. 
But because Foster was 12 years old when they were filming this. Um, oh, she, she actually 12. Yes. Yeah. Damn. I, okay, I'll do my really quick Jodie Foster tangent on this movie. Normally, I hate child actors. I think they suck because most of the time, child actors are trying to act like adults and not like children. But in this movie, it works because of you know her profession and what she does. So like her acting is phenomenal in this movie. That's it. But uh, because she was a minor in this kind of role, they had to take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, and so in the movie, she's also playing... A child? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a child playing a child. Yeah. And she's playing her age. <laughs> I don't like that. So they did have rules where if she felt at all uncomfortable with doing anything on set, okay. they had a body double and it was actually her older sister who was 18 who looked very uh, similar to is her. Is that what they did for the kissing scene? Uh, I believe that's what they did for the kissing scene and also when she's trying to take Travis's belt off. Okay, good. Because I, when I was watching that scene specifically, I'm like, oh, the it's it's just a few like over the shoulder stuff but they looked really similar okay and so they used her older sister uh they did also have some pushback from the la welfare board (laughs) regarding uh the portrayal of this makes sense but um what an ambitious thing i don't i don't know why i guess it's just because i like my brain couldn't accept that in the story there's a 12 year old sex worker that I was just like, no, they just say that because for like weird fucking shitty guys that want. Well, to- no, she she's sex trafficked, so yeah. you know. She's- oh, she's she's sexed. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I did not pick up on any yeah. of these. Yeah. I'm, so I, I'm not meant for this cruel world. No, <laughs> I'm meant for silly movies. But because you know. of how kind of intense and serious this was, mm. they had a lot of concern. Phillips, the producer, hired Pat Brown, who was a retired California governor, as their attorney. And so they kind of were able to get past the hurdles with the L.A. Welfare Board. They did have to hire a psychologist. I was going to say, they definitely should hire some kind of therapy. Yes. So she did have to have meetings with psychologists to make sure that the film, like, wouldn't ruin her morals. And basically, like, that she was sane to do this. And, like, the film and the role wouldn't damage her in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And she also did say that they were extremely transparent with her with, like, every single thing that was going on. Okay. And obviously, like, her mom was on set the whole time as, yeah. like, her guardian, so cool. they took it, yeah, really seriously. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. So, next up, casting-wise, we have Sybil Shepard, who plays Betsy, the girl that yes. Travis becomes obsessed with. And she was hired because... Yeah, girl one he becomes obsessed with. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Scorsese was like, I want a Sybil Shepard type. And his casting agent was like, then just get Sybil Shepard. He's like, oh, okay. I don't even... I saw a bunch of things that were talking about, like, all the actresses who auditioned for the role and stuff, but it kind of seems like she's the only one that Scorsese wanted, so I don't, I don't really know. I don't that. even know what Civil Shepard... T- I mean, I'm not... I don't know if I've seen Civil Shepard enough. I don't... So she had previously been in the last picture show in the Heartbreak Kit, which I, is, like... So she was gaining notoriety, and so she was kind of, like, relevant at the time. I don't know what her, like, type... She's just, like, a woman. Like, what's her Civil yeah, Shepard type? I don't... I don't know. But just, when she first received the script, her character actually didn't have like any lines. Oh, really? Mm. And so she threw the script across the room and she was very insulted. <laughs> oh. But um, okay. when she kind of considered it more, she got into rehearsal and did like improv with De Niro. She's like, okay, I'll do it. And then um, again, like we said, De Niro was kind of like the first one cast. But at the time, he went off to Italy to shoot Bernardo Bertolucci's 1900. And I saw different things saying it was either like two weeks up to two months. But basically, while they were filming 1900, he would fly from Italy to New York on the weekend 
where he obtained a taxi driver license and he would work full shifts in preparation for this. Oh, shit. Look at that. And then during that time, he'd already won an Oscar for Godfather Part Two, and he was only recognized once. Hmm. And the person was like, you've won an Oscar? Like, is it that hard to find work right now? Goodness. <laughs> You're driving a taxi, bro. <laughs> Uh, but during this time, he lost 35 pounds, and to get even more into character, he listened to tapes of Arthur Bremer, the assassin that I talked about earlier, and he listened to his diaries as well. And then in Italy, again, filming 1900, on his time off, he would go to a U.S. Army base and record soldiers from the Midwest to get the accent mm. down, which I'm like, he doesn't Dumb. really do a Midwest <laughs> accent, does he? No, I, I don't think so. I think he's kind of stifling the New York accent, but, it's but still there. I wouldn't call it Midwest. But I do think it's interesting because looking into this and seeing that he was trying to go for a Midwest accent and stuff and also like Paul Schrader's intent was that you have somebody who's not from New York living in New York who's already disgusted with New York adding to the character. But they kind of don't give you much backstory on Travis at all. Yeah, I didn't think they mentioned at all that he was outside of New York, did they? No. Yeah. I mean, maybe because he he like writes to his parents. Oh, oh, you're right. they really keep his background very yeah. mysterious and yeah, he lies a lot. He he talks about being honorably discharged and you see like a scar on his back, but like that's all. Yeah, a gnarly scar. Yeah, that's all yeah. in terms of like being a soldier and a vet that you see. Which is if because if he's not considered like disabled, I wonder I wonder if he's like a POW. Is that why he's on No like I, I mean no only speculation, but Well, if he's from the mid Midwest, he should have gone. Oh hey there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't, a wait, lot of for, I can't wait for them to wash the scum off the streets. One day a rain will come and just wash them all away. Oh, yeah. Thank oh, you. I didn't know you weren't into nudie sorry. films. Oops, sorry, dear. I sent you flowers. Uh, Fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my favorite porno theater. Uh, Man, that movie would have been way better. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Way better. I think if you took Taxi Driver and just replaced him with like a myriad of other things, it'd be hilarious. Like the Cookie Monster. Or like <laughs> yeah. you could literally put anything in his role and it'd be funny. Do the thing where like in Muppets movies, there's like one actual person and the rest yeah. of Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we should do Muppets Taxi Driver. Anyway. Who's playing Iris? Because either it works either way. Either he's a Muppet and everyone <laughs> yeah. else is normal. And he's like alienated and isolated or everyone else's Muppets. And then he's alien and isolated because he's the only real one. (laughs) Anyway, we're getting off topic here. And we've got a lot of information to get through. So we're going to keep going. So we're cast. We're ready to go. Let's hit it. Filming began in the summer of 1975 in New York City. They shot for a total about um, 45 days. Originally, it was supposed to be 40. They went about five or six days over budget um, by the end of production. (sighs) That's going to bring my score down. One even <laughs> over a budget, Ooh, minus two. Mm. Uh, one of the problems that they had was the rain created a lot of inconsistency in the shots, and Scorsese didn't want to move on from a shot or a scene until it was right. He clashed with Columbia, specifically overshooting out the diner window to like make it match. Mm. Um, he also had a, a little tiff with Columbia when they saw the dailies and saw the scene when he goes to the porno theater by himself. In the movie, obviously, we see that like the screen is blurred. Yeah. But they hadn't gotten to that point yet. And so Columbia saw it and it was just full graphic pornography. Porn. And they were like, uh, I hate. Hate that. Hate. And, don't, don't and like hate. It. he intended to put some like solution on the screen to like blur it, but they just saw it before he could get to that. And so they were really angry at him. And the and uh Mike Phillips, the producer, kind of took the heat for it. And <laughs> he said something like, Yeah, Marty could have avoided that, but Yeah, uh, I don't 
I think that was a silly decision to begin with. Why not just because be like, if your intention is to blur it, tell them. Because if anything, it, like it kind of like takes you out of the movie because you're like, oh, it's blurred. They blurred it because it's porn, yeah. and then I'm like, oh, I'm watching a movie and they had to censor it. Like it like kind of took me out. So I think if they just avoided showing the screen altogether and just used the audio, it would have been fine. Yeah, I agree. Which so. is what they do for like the other time he goes in, I think. When yeah. he's like looking through his fingers all yeah. weird. Yeah, I was going to say, we need more of him doing the anime hand pose. <laughs> the JoJo pose with his hand in front of him. Man, we're getting the gamers and the weebs. Yeah. <laughs> all of you getting shout outs. Uh, but also the timing for filming this movie could not have been more perfect. So at this time, the city of New York is portrayed full of trash. Gross. Uh, and it was because... Oh, is this a trash strike? Yes. Oh, there you go. Look at the knowledge. Uh, sanitation workers were on strike. I, I think... looked it up. Apparently, it only lasted like two days. But and everywhere York, else was like, it was the quick. summer of the strike. But yeah. New... Lo- well, yeah, New York, that yeah. shit would be... <laughs> There's um, already trash on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah already trash quick. on the street. And then a sanitation strike. It was also extremely hot. Like the, the whole goddamn city is ready to blow. Yeah. They Just also, um, this was also when New York City was basically bankrupt. Oh, okay. And um, they shot on the west side of New York, and there were just rows and rows of condemned buildings. And they had access to those. And this is where they built Iris and Travis's apartments. Mm-hmm. But because of the rather sketchy nature of where they were, they actually hired gangs to protect them from other gangs Yo. in the area while they constructed and filmed in the buildings. Spike Lee did kind of a similar thing. Yeah, you gotta love supporting local business. Which is also New York. Yeah, because Spike Lee had some like local... They weren't like a gang, though. It was like a church or something. But they had them like clear out all the drug dens and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. There is a lot of improv that went into this film. They had a phenomenal script and basically how... Improv is improvisation? Yes. It means that you don't really have a script in mind and you're just kind of free balling it. Yeah. So they decided they didn't want to, you know, rewrite... <laughs> For all the people that don't know what... If, you, <laughs> if you've never given a presentation at school, and you yeah. don't know what improv is. <laughs> um. Oh. So yeah, they had a lot of improv sessions before shooting and while shooting. So Scorsese had Peter Boyle, who plays Wizard, the um, taxi driver kind of guy who's bald. Whoa, okay, uh, whoa, that's not your word, okay? Whoa. <laughs> the, you can't whoa. go around and say him. I was going to say, Peter Boyle is in uh, Young Frankenstein. I think you could say follically challenged. Yeah. <laughs> With a hard D? Oh my God. <sighs> Have you seen Young Frankenstein? Yeah, I've seen Young Frankenstein. Yeah, he's he's With the monster. The... Boom the Marines! Yeah, that's that's him. That's Wizard. Oh shit. Yeah. Anyway, so he met with real dispatchers and recorded conversations and kind of implemented those into his lines. And also that diner that the taxi drivers meet at a lot was a real diner that taxi drivers met at. So Peter Boyle and De Niro improvised the scene where Wizard is telling Travis to like get drunk and like, yeah, it happens <laughs> to the best of us. Which as Stefan pointed out, it's like Travis it's is so like sad. It's like a cry for help. It's his like yeah. actual cry for help where he knows something's wrong with him and he needs someone to help. He's lonely. He's reaching out and us men, we just can't, you know. Yeah. And he's like, I, I don't know. I just, I have to do something. Peter Boyle described it as like the person who's trying to say the right things, but just says all of the wrong things because yeah. they just don't know. Yeah. And so they just kind of improv. And so a lot of that interaction is Peter Burrell just kind of coming up with stuff off the top of his head, trying to be like, a man becomes here's just kind his- of like useless, like advice that I can give you, which clearly is not going to help at all. Yeah. Man becomes his job. A man is his job. Just work and 
become get, a part of the corporate And then I like how he says machine. get laid, yeah. which he is already proven to not be capable of doing. Yeah, he can't do it. He can't <laughs> fucking do it. Another thing is that bef- before they were shooting, uh, De Niro and Foster would go to lunch together a lot. Like De Niro would just call her up and say, like, let's go get lunch. And De Niro was always in character. In, again, the Hollywood Reporter article, Jodie Foster said, Robert De Niro and I had a bunch of outings where he took me to a, a different diners around town and walked through the script with me. After the first time, I was completely bored. Robert was pretty socially awkward then and was pretty much in character, which was his process. I think I rolled my eyes at times because he was really awkward. But in those few outings, he really helped me understand improvisation and building a character in a way that was almost nonverbal. And so what they do is basically he would just go through the scene like 10 times and she would just be like, I know my lines. And then he would throw like a wild line at her. Mm-hmm. And so then she'd have to answer in character. And so then that's how she learned how to build upon her character with how Ooh, would this character answer. Mm. And then eventually that became part of uh, those scenes when uh, he takes her out to breakfast in the movie. Yeah. Hey, he called you a little chicken. Y'all do a little chicken. Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese. Go to Chuck E. Cheese. Um, Scorsese and Trader also met with a real sex worker named Garth Avery, who was about 15. And she plays Iris's friend who walks with her in a couple different scenes. She's 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trader, like, dark place. He, hired to, he hired her to talk. And he, like, took her in a hotel room and just, like, asked her questions. <sighs> And then took her out for breakfast the next day. He was staying, I think, in the same hotel as Scorsese. And so he had Garth, like, in his hotel room. And he just slipped a note under Scorsese's door that said, I have Iris, like, meet us at breakfast at 9 a.m. And they went, again, interviewed her some more. And the diner scene apparently is almost entirely written from things that she actually said and did with Schrader and Scorsese. So, like, changing the sunglasses, the way she talked, the sugar Mm -hmm. on the bread. Mm -hmm. That was what she did, which... I saw things that were talking about how it's very childlike that she's like doing that. Right. But yeah. also apparently Garth Avery was suffering from addiction. And so she would, which I guess is common, is you... This fucking 15-year-old is suffering from addiction? Yes. And... <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a cruel world. Yeah. yeah. And so... Um, how am I supposed to do bits and banter when we're talking <laughs> about a 15-year-old sex worker getting addicted to drugs? Um, so you, you have a lot of sugar to kind of quell the withdrawals that you have. Okay. Um, and the scene where Harvey Keitel as sport dances with Foster is also complete improv and Keitel actually worked on it for like weeks at the actor studio to figure out how he wanted to play it and like what song he wanted to do. And like, I guess watching it, I wouldn't have guessed that he put that much. No, all this is a real downer. Yeah. A real bummer. (laughs) I could use a break, and I think the audience could use a break, too. Guys, this isn't a bit. This is not Folks. a bit. This is not a single bit. This is me Grab expertly, fucking expertly guiding us into our very first ad read. Ad read. Ad read. So that means you can't skip it. Anyways, were we talking about improv? Yeah, and I saved the best improv for last. It's also the most well-known improv of this film, which is when Travis looks in the mirror and says, You talking to me? Talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Wait, are you talking to me? Are you? I'm sorry, I need to double check real quick. Pardon. Wait, are you talking to me? So, uh, yes, one of the most well-known facts about this film is that the line was improv And so in the script, it just says, Travis talks to himself in the mirror. 
And when De Niro asked uh, either Paul Schrader or Scorsese, like, what should I say? They were like, well, basically, you're like a little kid playing dress up in a mirror, you know, just kind of go for it. So he tried a bunch of different things. And Scorsese talks about he was hunched down and actually close to De Niro's feet, like for that angle Mm. and just watching it happen. And they were (laughs) they were going like over for the day. And his first idea was like, dude, we like, please, we have to move on. And he was like, no, we, we have something here. This is really good. And obviously, he was right. <laughs> this is the only fun fact of the entire movie. All the other facts were sad. Yeah. They made me sad. Miles, something that you mentioned in the synopsis that we are both kind of surprised that you knew from Issa was that yeah, thanks, Martin, Issa, Martin Scorsese is in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. He plays Mar- that taxi customer who mm-hmm. is spying on his wife and tells Travis to let the meter keep going. And he says... I'm a really fucked up guy. You know? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a really fucked up guy. I'm a little weird. I'm a dog chasing cars. So he, he was not initially supposed to be in this as this character. Okay. The original actor got injured and they oh. had to find a replacement. And he's like, well, I could do it. And they went, oh, yeah, you should do it. And Schrader stated that he was actually afraid that Scorsese would be unhappy with his performance and just end up cutting the scene in the editing room. And he really liked the scene. So he was like, well, please don't. <laughs> please keep it. But Scorsese dug it and they kept it in. And he also said that he learned a lot from De Niro acting opposite him in that scene. Because I think the first line of that is when Scorsese says, like, don't turn the meter off. Mm. And De Niro's like, I have to believe you. You have to make me keep it on. The same thing when he's doing the whole, like, oh, you think I'm fucked up, huh? Mm -hmm. De Niro was saying, I am not going to turn my head. You have to make me turn my head. So he was giving... Scorsese like a lot to kind of really try to get De Niro's attention and he talked about how he could really tell that De Niro was just like acting with the back of his head which was like kind of hard to compete with and like he was really Mm. just trying to get attention but yeah De Niro told Scorsese that he wouldn't look unless he was actually convinced I I love uh De Niro in this scene because he's just like what the he's been out crazy fuck (laughs) what the fuck is going he's just staring I like the scenes where De Niro just kind of stares because he doesn't know what to do or say. Yeah. It happens when he talks to Kaitel in sport. Or Kaitel as sport. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'm hip. And then Kaitel's just going off. And I forget what he calls him. He says something about his face. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, just, like, he's just like smiling. He's smiling. And he's, just like, <laughs> and he's just like looking at it. Like he's staring. He just doesn't know what to say. He's Which, like, one thing he says to the Secret Service agent, he's like, oh, I just kind of like take everything in. Yeah. Which is true. That's what he does. Oh my mm. god, the Secret Service part, he stares at him for like three minutes and then goes, hi. Yep. Yeah. I like how the I second like he walks child. away, the second he walks away, the Secret Service guy <laughs> brings you over, like other guy over, he's like, get over here now. And De Niro throughout this entire process was pretty, pretty method. He oh, kind of stayed in character. And the other actors said it was really easy to act opposite him. Sybil Shepard, again, Betsy, said that it wasn't hard to be afraid of him. They didn't like think, obviously, that he was like really going to go crazy but he's not that fucked up and twisted like he's me. Been, that's why when you mentioned like jeff bridges being considered i'm like i don't see jeff bridges as like manic neurotic yeah. kind of like bridges ah. and uh so yeah sybil shepherd said that it wasn't hard to be afraid of him apparently apparently either <laughs> sorry apparently either sybil shepherd didn't know her lines and it frustrated de niro or some, I read somewhere that like he asked her out and she rejected him. I don't I don't believe that one, if I'm honest. But um, 
either way, they kind of ended up not really getting along at all by the end of the movie, which kind of helped the tension mm. um, as, you know, Travis devolves into madness. Albert Brooks, again, the campaign worker, also said that, like, De Niro wouldn't talk to him at all. And he was like, I respected it. He was, like, doing his thing. And our characters wouldn't have got along. So why uh, try to bring that? Yeah. Scorsese also apparently had a very hard time directing Jodie Foster because he was kind of uncomfortable with yeah. the character and, you know, didn't want to cross any lines. And maybe just directing children, even though he had directed her and Alice doesn't live here anymore. But I but read that sometimes he would... telling a child, you, gotta, you know... You gotta get down on your knees and uh, yeah, act like, like you're about you to gotta, suck this guy's yeah, dick. You know, or you, gotta, you gotta act a little more needy. Like, I'd be like, ugh. I read that he would sometimes give De Niro the instructions and have De Niro relay the directions oh, to Jodie okay. Foster, hmm. which Jodie Foster has also stated that Robert De Niro was the person who introduced her to what real acting was and like the power of the real craft. And she said that this working alongside him, especially doing the improv, it unlocked like a whole new understanding of what acting could be. And mm-hmm. she cites him as like her biggest inspiration for that. It's and not just reciting lines. We're going to talk about the looks of the characters real quick. We're gonna kind of change gears because honestly, in terms of stories on the production, there's not a lot. It's just that they kind of were run and gun, got things done. So, oh, look at that! You rhyme. Thank, thank you, thank you. So Ruth Morley was the costume designer for this film, and Jodie Foster hated everything that her character wore. She hated the makeup. She hated the platform heels. She hated the short shorts. Yeah, she was a huge tomboy. Understandable. And the this sunglasses was... were kind of fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but everything was like antithetical antithetical to what she normally was comfortable with the mohawk that travis dons by the end of the film uh-huh. was inspired by saigon soldiers after scorsese met with his friend victor mcnada who uh-huh. he actually plays a very minor role in this which is he plays the secret service cameraman who like tries to get a photo oh, okay, yeah. of travis yeah so he was in special services in vietnam and he suggested the mohawk and explained like if you saw a soldier with a mohawk they were like on a different level you gave them a wide berth because they were like ready to kill and ready to get killed. I think you didn't um, want to mess with them. Airborne soldiers in World War Two did mohawks. Oh, really? Like not all of them, but like I think in like the hundred and first, yeah, they, they did mohawks. Mohawks are definitely like a pretty extreme haircut. Which is, if you're moving on, I thought it was interesting because like the mohawk obviously is a Native American like hairstyle, and then Kaitel wears like kind of Native American like clothing. Is there anything on that or no? No, okay. I got nothing on that. I didn't know if there was, and then and then they called De Niro a cowboy. Like I don't know if there's like a weird cowboy and something going on there. Or I think it was just because he's wearing cowboy boots. Yeah, which I guess he has also another thing for, about him being from the Midwest. Yeah. Um, now something that I never knew about this film somehow is that the Mohawk is a wig. Really? Yeah. It. He didn't actually shave his head. And coward. There's only like one or two shots where I, when I was like looking for it, I saw it. Yeah. But holy cow, very good. So the mm-hmm. man who did this, his name, stay with me here, boys. His name is Dick Smith. And he was the special makeup artist who made it. So oh. he basically, what they would do is they pasted down De Niro's kind of shorter hair as flat as possible. And then they had a bald cap that used very short, coarse hair. He specified that it was not human hair. Don't know what kind of hair it was, but it wasn't human. Of course. So Donkey. they made a bunch of those because they had to use a new one every single day. And then the actual mohawk piece was a separate piece that they put on top of the bald cap. And Smith said that De Niro was not only patient with this process, but he was a perfectionist and he would point out any inconsistencies that he saw and they wouldn't move on until they were both happy with it. Yeah, you know what would make those inconsistencies go away? Just shave his head. head, I'm guessing 
It was either, because they had to film other scenes later yeah, on where he didn't have a shaved head. It was like the shooting schedule. Must have just been why they did that. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> so uh, moving on from that, we're going to kind of talk about the cinematography a little bit here because hey, it's very cool. It's good. Very good. Very good. Very it's good. cool. So Michael Chapman is the director of photography and he has described Jean-Luc Godard and Raoul Coutard as his, mm. he cited that as his inspiration for doing things kind of very run and gun and like not in a traditional way, which was very French, right? French new wave. Um, Scorsese has cited Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man and a documentary called A Bigger Splash as his inspiration as well. And Chapman said, quote, much of the way the movie looks was dictated by the fact that we didn't have a lot of time and didn't have a lot of money and therefore couldn't do traditional things. We couldn't light the streets with big lights. We had to take our level of light down to let New York light itself. Of course, that turned out to be exactly the right thing to do. And I was eager to do it in a terrified sort of way. Thank God we didn't have any more time or money. Hmm. All right. And uh, when they would shoot stuff in the taxi, it was the simplest setup you could have imagined. They never towed the taxi. Mm-hmm. There was De Niro, whoever the passenger was, yeah. if there was one. Then Michael Chapman would either be hunched down in the back seat with Scorsese with a sound man in the trunk. Oh, they got <laughs> or, the sound man in the where trunk? They, where they belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they kind of had like steps that they would attach to the front of the taxi that the camera would go on. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Classic. Yeah. Very, very simple. Chapman also talked about how Scorsese's approach to the camera kind of intrigued slash like stressed out the crew because he would do things that were not traditional. Mm. So there's, it's like two minutes in when Travis is getting signed up to be a taxi driver. He goes through like the, the garage yeah, and it pans and he goes behind the camera yeah, and then it keeps panning and then he reenters the frame. From a different location of where he started. Mm-hmm. Mm. And they were like, whoa, we've never seen this before. Whoa. When he's on the phone trying to call Betsy and yeah. then it dollies over to just the empty hallway as he's on yeah. the phone. Uh-huh. Again, just like really emphasizing like, his isolation and loneliness. Uh-huh. I'm sure you probably saw this because a lot of people say this too, but like there's like an omniscience to the camera. Like it's it's like got its own like personality at times. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's what I really like about this movie. Yeah. And so Michael Chapman described this as kind of like a documentary of the mind. So you can see all these strange things happening and know that it's like kind of in his head and where his head is at. And Scorsese said, quote, it's like a horror film in a way. It's New York Gothic, you'd call it. But I didn't say we were going to make a new style or we were going to make the film very stylish. It's the way I saw it. And I drew many of the shots as as many of the shots as possible so that we wouldn't have a situation where we walked on set and we didn't know where the camera was going to be placed. And this is in the making of doc that I watched. And I would say the two biggest resources that i used for this were the making of doc which i'll be linking and the uh hollywood reporter interview but yeah he storyboarded everything not mm. to say that the storyboards are good scorsese storyboards aren't like kind of artistic funny. and beautiful which mm-hmm. i i like and are like the ones that i do i like the ones Cope. that are raw you're coping um and i'll definitely be posting some of those on the instagram so go check it out at uh the takes it sound like kurosawa who for one of his movies had his storyboards painted like oh, watercolor painted. Like, all right, that's a little too much. Cool, uh, yeah, Scorsese but... doesn't do that. But um, Michael Chapman like really liked them because he considered them like road directions instead of like it has to be this way. It was just yeah. like this is how yeah, I see it. Storyboards are nice as uh, an editor. But yeah, that's what I have on the camera. I'm sure we'll talk about it later. I want to leave that up for discussion. But now we're gonna get to the final shootout because this was planned very meticulously. 
Uh, they again use the same kingdom building that was Iris's and Travis's apartment, the long and narrow hallway. Going back to my man, Dick Smith. He, <laughs> so he did special effects for The Exorcist. Okay. Uh, he did it for The Godfather. He did Marlon Brando's like... Cheek thing? Cheeks thing, yeah. So he said the hardest effect to do was the hand being blown off that would by the guy. Sense. So normally he would be close to the action and essentially like have fishing line that he would kind of pull the hand off with. But um, he couldn't get close because the hallway was so narrow. So essentially, they did this mold around the guy's fist and then built the hand on top of that. And then the base of the palm and the thumb were solid, like a solid structure. And then the rest of the fingers were hollow wax that were loaded with squibs. And then in the hand was also where all the fake blood was hidden. So then the squibs go off and then they release the blood. And it's just the bottom of the palm and the thumb that are left. Right. And then for when Travis gets nicked in the neck mm. by Harvey Keitel's character, there's essentially just like a tube with blood in it with the wound on top. And then basically a wedge that looked like human skin placed on top. Right. That was, again, basically attached with fishing line. Uh, I was so, just going to say, I was like, was fishing line involved in this? Yeah. So, or like monofilament. Dick Smith had to time it where the gun goes off, he yanks it and starts the blood at the same time. Oh, that sounds not easy. Because there's one shot with the guy who gets shot in the face where I feel like it very clearly looks like someone's just like pulling his cheek away with string. That's the next one I'm going to talk about <laughs> right here. So it was very similar. Basically, there were four capsules with blood covered with, for lack of a better word, like skin patches. I don't know. Like, right. Fake you know, skin. Yeah. And, and attached to monofilament that they would pull out. But that's how they managed to do that. And then for all for the whole shootout and everything... Foster was shown step by step exactly what was going to happen. They made sure, like, she knew it wasn't real, which obviously she knew it wasn't real, but, like, to make sure it didn't scar her in any way. And Dick Smith actually showed her, like, how they mixed up the blood and used bits of sponge for, like, flesh. Mm. And then they would do styrofoam cups for parts of the skull. Yeah. If they want. Um, So, like, the guy who gets the back of his head, like, blown Mm. out. Um, So they use sponge and styrofoam cup for that. Yeah, when she's like, don't shoot him, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. Mm Mm-hmm. For that top-down shot that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which is iconic, yeah. where it kind of tracks through the apartment. So they cut through the ceiling for that, mm. and it took three months. Oh, Jesus like, Christ. So it's in the apartment building. Yes. Because it's condemned. It's condemned. Yeah, so. But because it was structurally not safe, they had to like reinforce the building and apartment in different places to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So they worked on cutting out this track for like three months, and then essentially put a cameraman on a dolly, and then had grips pull him slowly across the ceiling Damn. to get this shot. So, well, real quick. Yeah. Uh, Cause we kind of passed it. I wanted to talk a little, cause I have a little fun fact about uh, the guns that they used mm. uh, for the fight scene, mm-hmm. because with blanks, it's still like really dangerous to be shooting people really up close. Yeah. Uh, so they went to Robert De Niro and gave him oh, live he's ammunition. Doing it again. <laughs> he's doing it again. Uh, uh, and they actually let him go around shooting people. Yeah. Okay. More you know. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Patch it on quicker. It's not as funny. No. No. I. I was like, where is he going with this? Does he know something? <laughs> the answer is no. I never know anything. But yeah, for that final shot, uh, when they did actually have to shoot inside the apartment, they would basically just cover up the ceiling, and then for the final shot, they could remove it, use Very the track. Cool. Mm-hmm. And again, they were always running late. And with Jodie Foster as a minor, they were really crunched on time when they were trying to get that shot in. So they only about 20 minutes left in the day and they finally managed to do it. So it was three months of prep 
for 20 minutes to get that shot. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. I really like, um, you don't see it a lot, but movies and shots like this where it like extends up higher than like would be feasibly possible. Yeah. I think um, Breaking Bad does this a couple times where there'll be a shot where like it just like keeps rising and then it like keeps going past like where the ceiling would be and you're like, oh shit, like this isn't right. And then I even like Night of the Hunter did a similar thing where it's just like the room in an abyss. And I really love when they do that. It just kind of like locks everything and it's like wormhole this, space. Uh, this shot is, is uh, Issa's favorite in the movie. It's pretty the top good. Down it's a good one. one. Yeah. yeah. I'd say it's one of the hallway shots. Pretty good. Yeah. Very quick one, but I like when he's buying the guns and the guy holds up the revolver and you see his eye through the cylinder of mm-hmm. the gun. I think it's good. So that is what I have for production. But now we're going to get into post-production. Oh. oh. So the lead editor for this was Marksha Lucas, who do you guys know anybody else with the last name Lucas? Marksha, Marksha, Marksha. Uh, George. Um, <gasps> Got George it. Lucas. So Marsha Lucas was George's George Lucas's uh, wife at the time. Oh shit. And she edited she Star an Wars she and an she won an Oscar for Star mm-hmm. Wars. This is true. Um mm. so she edited this movie and they had a couple of uh, additional editors as well. Um I oh, I've I didn't write down his name, but one of the editors was talking about how when he was in the editing room, he, again, learned a lot from Scorsese because his instinct was to, like, cut, and, he, and Scorsese would be like, no, let it play. Mm-hmm. So, like, this, one example is the scene where Travis is with the other taxi drivers, and he puts, like, an Alka-Seltzer in his yes. water, and it yeah. just holds on it bubbling. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just learning to hold because it makes the audience go, what's important about this? Mm-hmm. What am I not seeing that I should be seeing? And then it forces them to think about it in a different way. The hallway what am, I, scene what am I supposed to be feeling too? Yeah. When they showed the rough cut of this to the studio, Columbia was like, uh, yeah, this is going to get an X rating. Get it down to an R or we're going to cut it and just never release it. Damn. So they tried to make like minuscule changes here and there, but it wasn't enough. And eventually in order to get an R rating instead of an X rating, they desaturated the final shootout scene. So the blood is a lot more muted. Yeah, I know. Okay. I noticed. I mean, I've heard that before, but I never noticed how like apparent it is when it cuts to him like pulling out outside the apartment. And it's like, whoa! I'm surprised that worked. You just desaturate it, and they're like, yeah, yeah. That so works. Michael Chapman did not like this. It seems like he still does not like this because he meant for it to look this way. He wanted it to look vibrant. Right. Um, Scorsese didn't seem to have that much trouble with it he was like yep to get the r rating and to make sure it was seen whatever i think it works when it's isolated to specifically the shootout because then you can make some argument that like oh it's you know because this this moment is so important to the story that like it stands out from everything else but like but um the original negative of the film has deteriorated before it could be saved so Um, the original vibrant image is lost and again chapman seems to be pretty sad about this Sorry, Chapman. Um, but they got the R rating that they wanted and needed. And now we're going to talk about the score. So Music. Bernard good score. Herman Music. wrote the score for this. And Scorsese was a huge fan of his. And he described it as he would watch a movie and go, the music's really good. And then learn that it was Bernard Herman. Um, he did a bunch of Hitchcock stuff. He did Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho. His debut comp- composition was for Citizen Kane. Oh, shit. He did take some convincing to do this because Scorsese was like, hey, taxi driver. And he's like. Oh, I don't want to do a, a car movie. And he's like, well, it's not <laughs> It's not really a car movie. Um, and when he gave him the script, Herman was like, all right, cool, I'll do it. The score was recorded in two days with Herman conducting the first day. But because of his weak heart, a man named Jack Hayes stepped up and conducted the second day. 
And it was that night of the second day that Herman passed away from yeah. a heart attack. What? I saw it coming. I saw it coming, Simon. Yeah, and uh, the movie is dedicated to him at the end. Yeah, that's why I was like, that name, wait a second. Motherfucker out here going like, oh, I can't do the second day. Sorry, guys, my heart isn't feeling real up to it, and then dies. It's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, Spielberg visited the recording sessions, and he told Bernard Herman, like, wow, I really admire your work. And then Herman goes, oh, yeah? Then why do you always use John Williams? I think I've heard that quote before. Oh, <laughs> got him. Hilarious. The music's very good. The score's very good. Yeah. I think, I know they talk about like cinematography and everything adding to the dreaminess, but like the music does it a lot. It's got the more, it's got the brass instruments and whatnot. Right. Which is interesting that you mentioned that because, yeah, he doesn't really use any strings besides like a harp a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's to give it a kind of more muscle or like be more masculine and. Yeah. Yeah. So Taxi Driver was released into like four theaters in New York on February 9th, 1976, with Columbia thinking it wouldn't do well. They just hoped it would kind of break even. They didn't want to, they didn't really want to put a lot of success and time into it. But in its opening weekend, it grossed $68,000, which doesn't sound like much, but it's $350,000 today. And again, with how small. Of a release it was. It actually was a house record oh, in New York, and it would go on to gross $28.3 million in the U.S. alone, which is about $152 million today. Hey. It uh, competed at the Cannes Film Festival. It was booed for its graphic nature. Mm. <laughs> Makes sense. But it actually went on to win the Palme d'Or. Cowards. Which, was the, which is the highest award at the festival. However, because Scorsese and the cast were like, well, we got booed, they didn't think they had a chance, so they left. And uh, Mike Phillips is the only, again, the producer was the only person who stayed around. And so then it won the Palme d'Or, so he accepted it. And he said that half the audience were on their feet and half the audience were still booing. Damn, booing. That's Uh, silly. Yeah. And at the Oscars, it was nominated in four categories for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Score. It did not win anything. F. Do you know what else was up then? Nope. Okay, that's fine. Um, but just because it was released and went through the award circuit doesn't mean it's over, though. We're going to talk about some of the, I guess, fallout, for lack yeah, of a better word. Movie, what this horrible movie has caused to the male psyche. <laughs> so Paul Schrader talked about a time when a young man came into his office after the release of this and said, how did you know about me? Uh-huh. Damn. And he was like, he's, he's just like me for real, for real. And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, I just watched Taxi Driver in Seattle and I... Took a bus and trains all the way over to New York. How did you know about me? Who told you about me? And he realized like this guy related to Travis Bickle so much that he swore it was like him. Except he wasn't a taxi driver. So I'm like, what the like? Yeah, that's that's the essence of he like me for real. (laughs) He really is. Um, But it solidified that the movie that they had created felt so real to a lot of people and made people like that feel seen in a weird. I mean, it came from a real place. Yeah. And uh, now we're gonna talk about. A fun little event that happened in 1981 mm-hmm. where Paul Schrader was scouting on a location, I think in like New Orleans or something, and he heard that someone tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan and he thought, oh, it's one of those taxi driver guys. <laughs> and sure enough, when he got back to his hotel, the FBI was waiting for him. Oh my God. And they go, hey, did a man named John Hinckley Jr. ever approach you? And he said, no, but that wasn't a no for Jodie Foster. Because Hinckley had become obsessed not only with Taxi Driver when it came out, 
but with Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For the record, Miles is standing up Stood and is up. pacing at this point. She, 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 she was 12. Now, yeah, that's not like me for real. You, 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 motherfucker, you can't get obsessed with a 12-year-old. So when Jodie Foster went off to college at Yale, he followed her there. Oh, you he wrote her love letters. You fucking can't. Oh. He stalked her. He called her. And eventually he decided that he had to do something to get her attention. What the fuck? It's, it, it's, it comes, it's the loneliness. It's such <laughs> loneliness and a, and a drive for attention. Um, and after a few different ideas that he bounced around, he settled on trying to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Um, and just, so, just bouncing around some ideas. Yeah. He, oh, maybe he liked me, for real. I'm going to assassinate Ronald watch Reagan. <laughs> so right before the attempt, he wrote Jodie Foster a letter saying, over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and me- love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never have had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. That is how you get the girl. <laughs> now, of course, Ronald Reagan survived, but Hinckley did wound a police officer, a Secret Service agent, and the press secretary named James Brady, who mm. he shot in the head. And Brady was paralyzed and eventually died 33 years later. Mm. And they determined it was from his injuries. And so they ruled actually his death as a homicide. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) It's no good. So this happened. And at the same time that this happened on March 31st, 1981. So this, the assassination attempt happened on March 30th, a day later, the Oscars took place. And this was just simply a few minutes after Scorsese lost the best directing Oscar for Raging Bull, but De Niro won for Raging Bull. He was informed backstage that John Hinckley Jr. had cited Taxi Driver as his inspiration for this. And for a while afterwards, Scorsese told his friends that he didn't want to make any more movies. He said... Yeah, that would fuck me up, an Oppenheimer too. moment. That would fuck me up. In 1983, he said, maybe my films do strike a nerve. That's what they're supposed to do, isn't it? So what if I get a couple people killed because they're just like me for real, for real? So this kind of leads me to, I I think, the beginning of our conversation, which is, do you think Taxi Driver inspires violence? Yes. This, it did. (laughs) Um, It's it's hard to argue because, again, this is almost akin to like the video game argument or video games cause violence, where it incites violence in those who are not sound enough to know better. And so the people who are very much like Travis Bickle are the ones who are going to be inspired by violence. And as me and Mariah discussed a little bit, if people are already like Travis Bickle, chances are they're going to anyway. blow up at some point already. Yeah, that's genuinely a very good argument. Yeah. I'm not watching this and going, oh, man, I should no. kill someone. I, I, can play, you know, I can play a video game where I'm shooting dudes in the head, but I'm not like, ah, I want to go do it in real life. We, we, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've got a couple of quotes that I think are very interesting. Paul Schrader himself said, it's a particular breed of white boy, these taxi drivers. It is. Yes. It is. Yes. Yep. You are not going to get rid of the John Hinckley's of this world by getting rid of art. White boy. <laughs> um, and he said, you will lose the work of art that comments on the character if you try to censor art. Mm-hmm. Um, but the character will still be going along his merry way because he wasn't really created by art. No. So again, yeah, like if if anything, I think the art is important because it helps you understand the origin of men like this and young men like this, and and knowing how that develops. But but getting rid of media like this doesn't prevent them from yeah being created. No, it doesn't help that by the end of the movie, 
it's it's like the it's like the perfect you've created something in your head where you're like ah yeah i'm a hero i don't you know i'm really yeah. humble about it and then the girl that you chase comes back and you're like if it, it i feels don't need like, you um, anymore and she's like no oh like a power trip yeah, yeah it's like an definitely a power, a power trip of some guy laying in bed at night trying to and I understand. Okay, for those of you who don't know that he like me for real, we say that many times. You might not know, especially if you're not like on the internet. It's like a kind of internet meme joke thing where it's like movies with it's usually young boys, white boys, right? Where they're almost always lonely or in some cases psychotic, and people kind of jokingly, although not everyone jokingly, refers to like he like me for real. Yeah, examples would be Taxi Driver. American Psycho, Blade Runner. Blade Runner gets a pass because he's not like an evil man. Yeah, he's just extremely but lonely. Oftentimes, it's like psycho people drives another one. Yeah, he's a little more arguable, but just like very violence prone, mm-hmm. isolated behavior. Yes, it always it always comes from this place of loneliness, and I think why this one falls into it is. It's very deceptive because the first like half of the movie, for the three fourths of the movie, you're like Travis is. I mean, you kind of feel bad for him because he's just so lonely and so socially inept. Yeah. But ultimately, you're kind of like he's psycho. But then at the end, he does what when you start seeing sport and like the child trafficking and all that, you're like, this is so heinous. And because Travis is against it, you kind of want to root for him because it's like him versus this other thing. Let's other things far worse in my eyes. And that's where the movie ends. So by the end of the movie, you're like, ah, Travis is an all right guy. It's like kind of like a trick. I think a lot of the like the white knight fantasy plays into it, too, Mm -hmm. where people who are more socially inept have this idea that like if they save someone, if they if they do this amazing thing, then they'll finally be accepted. And I'm sorry, Mariah, we'll get I'm sorry, (laughs) we've steamrolled you. But I think um, you've been flattened. That's the important part of like analyzing this movie is I don't think he does it for altruistic reasons. You know, he's not doing it because like he wants to do good per se. I think he does it because he wants attention and because he's been rejected. And so it's more of an act of like revenge more than anything, like a personal uh, satisfaction. You got two white guys talking about that. For real, for real. real Yeah, Yeah. like, you know, it's going to happen expert <laughs> i do I, I think it's very interesting because i'm gonna I'm, i'll read a quote from uh jody foster that i i thought poor jody foster by the way yeah that's a lot to go through yeah um i think she says it really well which is with with people saying that taxi driver inspires violence especially with like john hinckley jr citing this mm-hmm. jody foster said i think you i think you make films about our culture and what's difficult and disturbing about our culture with a moral center and i think the filmmaking in this film does have a moral center even though it's told from the perspective of travis bickle we know where his desperation comes from which yeah. again yes this movie is not pro-violence if anything i think it's yeah showing the dangers of getting to this place um and understanding that and paul schrader said when I set out to write, I thought it was about loneliness. As I wrote it, I realized it was about something a little more interesting, which is self-imposed loneliness. Mm. That is a syndrome of behavior that reinforces itself. And then once, you know, which, Travis shoots the pimp and really goes downhill, he said, the idea was that it was a psychopath's suicidal fantasy. It was his apothe- apotheosis, mm-hmm. his coming into glory. So at that point, you're almost inside his head and you're in a world of glorified bloodshed, including his own, almost past realism. And probably inspired by the Wild Bunch, 
which has mm. an ending of pathological suicidal glory, just labored for these four men entering into a psychopath's heaven. And so that was sort of the thinking behind the script. The thinking was the bloodier, the better. I, I like the the mention of self-imposed loneliness because yeah. I feel like that can be tagged into the analysis of the ending where assuming, because there's theories we talked about, but like he, Betsy comes back and is like, oh, and then he turns her away. And so is that because he's doing this act of self-imposed loneliness where he's putting himself back in the yes. same place he can be so he can continue the cycle of violence that will eventually blow up again? You know, so I think I think that's a really good uh, well, yeah, because on the, the second here. date, he takes her to a porno theater. Yeah. He is sabotaging himself by doing that. Yeah. It's not, oh, I didn't know. It's, he knew. Do you think he knew? I, I think he knew. Um, I don't know if I, I mean, I, I think he's, I think subconsciously perhaps. I, I think it's like a subconscious self-sabotage, not, not a direct one per se. And for whatever many reasons he had gotten to that place, I think. That's my personal. Oh, uh, here's something I want to I want to toss by you guys. Do you think the last bit where he's recovered and he's told the girl that uh, he is it real? Yeah, or is it just I, like I think it's is real. It a fantasy of his? Uh, I think it's real. I mean, Ryan mentioned there's like a theory that you could argue that he actually died in the shootout and mm-hmm. everything after that is fake, but. Because one of the taxi cab guys like calls her out in the cab, so she mm-hmm. she's real. Unless the whole taxi cab guy's talking is fake, then she is real. So I I believe it's real, and yeah, that you know the whole ending is that the man is still deranged as ever. What do you think? I think it's real. Cool. Uh, and the thing is, um, I'm pretty sure Trader intended it as real because there was a sequel that they were going to do in the 90s. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, they go. couldn't have really done a sequel. If he had died. If he had died. Yeah. So that's what I'll say about that. Um, I want to end on one more quote before I hit you with some trivia that I just have here, which is uh, in an interview with Roger Ebert, Scorsese said that Taxi Driver, he, he called it, quote, my feminist film. <laughs> because it takes macho yeah. to its logical conclusion the better man is the man who can kill you mm. this shows that kind of thinking shows the kinds of problems some men have bouncing back and forth between their perception of women as goddesses and whores mm. yeah yeah that whatever that like terminology for the thing is and that goes back into <laughs> male culture of like the incel shit where they're like oh you're beautiful, you're beautiful, I love you. And then the second they get rejected, they're like, you're a fucking whore, you sk- well, I don't know if I can say skank on Which is still very the- much around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying, like with the incel stuff, which I find interesting because I thought about this movie in this context before. We're like, did this, did this type of like Man, loneliness exist in the past or is it something that's been exacerbated by technology and population and all that, you know, like, because I feel like you don't see these stories about men like this, at least not with the, the loneliness and the, you know, psychopathy. I think it's around, and I think it's even more just because, well, loneliness in the sense that, like, with the internet, men can see, men men can go, right. oh, I'm not alone, but I am alone, and society has made me this, so fuck society, mm. and... So it's like they don't feel as alone because they see it happening to other people, mm. but it still is loneliness. And I think the internet 
provides them an escape yeah. that is dangerous. I I, I think oh, uh, absolutely the internet both provides like a wedge to society and then keeps you away from it because it, yeah. it gives you that false safety of connectedness. The internet is a classic. The first one's free. So I. <laughs> So I think that's why you see a lot of these types of men and some of the heinous acts that come with them like occurring more in society than it did before is because of technology and stuff like that. But it's it's also, it's sad because, at least in my mind, it, they're not making decisions to do this per se. They're just, they don't, young men like this don't understand where their unhappiness is coming from and they're not mm. able to correct it that way. And so they just misattribute it to the wrong things. And then they fall into the spiral of torment and frustration and anger with everything and everyone. And I think if you're just able to sort of cut that off before it gets that far, you know, that's why I think the cautionary tale of this movie is to just know yourself better, you know? That's why. So Joker is a lot like this movie. It's pretty much like this movie. But the interesting thing that Joker does different i think is that it frames it more as like the society has failed him yeah i think joker definitely does it more as this is a man who has been brought yeah by external forces to this low point whereas a taxi driver he's kind of like self-sabotaging and he's sort of imposing it on himself joker it's like it's like the social services that are helping him like shut down and turn him away yeah. and then like his friends family like he's consistently pushed down so one's different inspired heavily yeah another he like me for real movie oh yeah i i forgot to <laughs> white boys white boy summer white boy summer <laughs> i forgot to mention the first guy he kills in the convenience store oh, yeah mm-hmm. and then the other guy is like beating at his yeah, dead we didn't even body. talk about the racism we, probably I, don't, we don't have to though <laughs> when i watched it i just watched it and i was like oh i'm watching a movie and then i thought back to it and i was like I just watched a motherfucker beat a man's corpse with a pipe. Yeah. That's so fucked up. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm watching a movie. That's, that's what kooky stuff. Yeah. Uh, media has cursed us all. Is what Truly. I'm saying. Do you guys want some fun facts? To, Give to, me, to me some fun. I need my palate is, is bitter. It's sour. D- d- is there any senators in town? Um, okay, first off, apparently Dustin Hoffman was going to be the first pick for Travis Bickle, but he thought Scorsese was crazy, and he turned it down, and has regretted it ever since. That could have worked. I think so. Paul Schrader thanked Albert Brooks for making him understand the character of the campaign worker. He said the campaign worker was the only role he didn't understand when he was writing it. Which, Ooh, Paul Schrader? Yeah. I was going to say, because I think the campaign worker is the most adjusted man in yeah, the story. Which Albert yeah, which Albert found extremely funny, kind of odd, yeah. a little concerning. I, li- I liked him the most because he, he had a good rapport with Betsy, but that wasn't like he wasn't imposing any sort of romance or like sexual subtext with her. Yeah. He was very friendly with her. And then when like, you know, she needed help, he was there to help her. Like he was, he was very good at just knowing his boundaries and being a good friend. Yeah, he is just a guy. He's Alan. <laughs> he is Alan. Um, there's a guy who pre- appears briefly when he plays the drum solos on the streets. And he mm, kind of yes. sings a song. Yeah, with a with the gnarly hair. Yeah, that was like a, a Lego shoe, man. It's like shoe polish. Yeah, in his hair. yeah Lego um, man hair. Peter Boyle, again, the man who plays Wizard, he saw him on the street and he told Scorsese about him. And Scorsese was like, "If you see him again, 
get his name. All right. Put him in. And so they put him in. Oh, um, I like Lego hair, man. And the last thing is that Travis orders apple pie with a slice of melted cheese on it. I don't know if you guys caught yeah, that. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I mentioned it. Yeah. Um, Which is a callback to the notorious serial killer, Ed Gein, who oh. requested a slice of pie with melted cheese on it in exchange for his confession. Oh. Such a weird. Highly concerning also. Yeah. Very concerning. Don't look up Ed Gein if you want to like sleep at night. Egg, so. egg Gein's lampshades. If you want custom lampshades, light switches. Oh. Um, you can figure it out. Uh, when I type in Ed Sheen, I get Ed Sheeran. Ed, Ed, Ed Gein. Ed, Ed Sheen. <laughs> Ed Gein? G-E-I-N. Don't look up don't, Donald. I don't know why yeah, I'm helping you. Yeah. Don't. Okay. Um, that's cool. Anyway, so that's That's what, a weird. I mean, I guess. I feel like it's not entirely fitting, but yeah. No, I mean, just, I guess. It's like kind of weird call Kind out. of questioning behavior. Yeah. And uh, that is all I have for you guys on Taxi Driver. I know that you, dear listener, are probably frustrated that I didn't talk about some of the stuff. Here's the thing. There's so much on this. Yeah. I had to I had to cut it off someplace. Oh, you might be upset with uh, our to, to save my sanity. So this is where I'm going to end it. Um, yeah. But I want to pass it over to you guys to see if there's anything else you want to talk about. Sure. I mean, I'll kind of rope this into just my overall like review. I think it's very good. Again, I think it's probably one of the, this like dilemma of the this brand of white boy, I think this is probably the best analysis and depiction of it that we have. I'm, I've been rereading a book called The Stranger by Albert Camus lately, and it's very similar. It's not quite there, but it's almost like proto-taxi driver, where it's a lot of the same themes of like someone experiencing this immense loneliness and disassociation that accumulates in... Do you guys know what the word paroxysm is? Nope. It's basically what this is, where it's like, I think it's like an, an intense outburst of violence after so-and-so like mm. a, pro- a proxist act would be what travis does and it happens in the stranger too but i think this is just a very good analysis of that i think it's a good character analysis there's a lot of things about travis i find interesting just from like a writing standpoint i like how he has no personality he's a blank blank slate and he takes personalities on from other people mm-hmm. like he's ne- like he starts seeing betsy and then all of a sudden he's got, you know, the Palantine stickers. He's like, oh, I'm your biggest supporter. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, what are your political views? He's like, I don't follow politics. And then he's like, oh, what movie are we going to see? Oh, I, I don't see movies. Like, he's, he has no personality. He's not in anything. He's he doesn't blank. listen to records. He yeah. just sort of, like, takes on what the people around him do, which in a very cool way makes him, like, a sort of demented reflection of, like, the society he lives in. He also contradicts himself a lot and she says that she says you're a walking contradiction like, you know he talks about eating healthier but we still see him like taking pills and drinking yeah there's something else too i forget there's some other like direct contradiction he does but i think just as a character analysis this is a very good movie Miles, what about you it makes me sad i know too much about this movie now <laughs> it just it just depresses me yeah yeah it's good but i'm sadder now <laughs> Anything else you want to add to that? Um, you, don't, you don't have to. He's just like me, for real, for he real. He's just like me. I, I think, like, I I get it. I watched the movie again. You, It's, it's and like, I mean, okay, to our defense, it is written for you to some degree to empathize with him. Yeah. Or parts of him. Yeah. In other words, I mean, all characters are written for you to empathize with them. In other words, why the hell would we watch Except it? for Hitler. Um, but by making us empathize with a man that we might not like, that makes us then reflect to ourselves and go, oh, shit, like, am I, you know? Hmm? 
But yeah. there's certain bit like I don't know. If you've ever like fumbled and then you go home, like there's a bit where he like goes home and he's got like his hands in his head and he's like, damn, like I've done that. Sometimes I get home after like something bad day or embarrassing. I'm just like, damn, damn, that was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So watching it, I I can see, I can see the pipeline. I can see some kid in high school, like just not connecting and watching this and I think that that was also what was sad about watching this movie is you see Travis, like I said, he's a blank plate, blank plate. He's like a sponge. Yeah. And so you see him just like absorbing these things happening, like with Martin Scorsese in the back talking about like you could. I feel like I can feel him absorbing that, that hatred for women. Yeah. And then the bits where it's like the uh, the young black kids like throwing stuff at his car. You can see him just like absorbing that like hatred and becoming like racist i'm like no he's, <laughs> my boy is becoming racist <laughs> yeah. and, oh he hates women now and like he's just like picking up all the things that he experiences and it's very sad that yeah. he can't have it he doesn't have any defense against it my, my boy my boy it's so sad it's like watching my boy just go the wrong way but it's good i think the cinematography is great yes yeah, it was like it was really good the music I, is really good i know it's been done over and over but yeah the hallway shot is phenomenal i think it's so cool I think it it is I think executed I, very well. I remember reading somewhere you probably saw this Mario where I think like the cinematographer's intention was like it was like too cringe for the camera and the camera has to be like all right we're done. Oh, I'm, that's like good. I'm moving that's on. Good. Like Travis you got to keep up like we're moving on. But also you can <laughs> interpret it as just like the empty hallway. It's just kind of him empty hallway into nothing just nah, like the the abyssal i like the idea of the camera just being like i'm not with you on this one that, that's I'm what sorry. i that's what i mean like i like the concept of the camera kind of being alive and being like oh, all right but um good movie it is a it is a good movie yeah i th- i mean i'm not a little lonely white boy yeah. and i don't think that he's like me for real for real the reason why i enjoy it so much and the reason i wanted to talk about it is because i i especially after reading the Scorsese's quote about it being a feminist film, it's like that, that is how I viewed it because mm-hmm. I think it is really emphasizing the dangers of yeah. toxic masculinity and this mentality that a lot of men have, which they believe that they are the victims when they're not, especially with the complex of holding women in really high regard or viewing mm-hmm. them as garbage. I, I mean, I don't think they're totally victims, but to an extent, I do think that all of us are victims to our society and to how we're raised. And specifically with a lot of men, I think some of those things are imposed upon us. Not to say like that concept concept of women is correct or that's the way it should be, but that's like the foundation of this mentality, I think. And one of the things that we didn't really talk about, he's a vet mm-hmm. coming back into civilian life. And also at this point is when the headline Ford to New York dropped dead was uh, mm. released when New York was going bankrupt and asking for help. And so I think just that compiled on top of everything is phenomenal timing for mm-hmm. what they were doing and adds a lot more depth into who Travis is and what he's feeling in that moment. Um, one of the things I do find interesting, yeah, specifically the female characters, Betsy cuts off the relationship when she no longer feels safe. Mm-hmm. And so for that, she's going to go to hell, according to Travis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, he kind of finds a new girl to obsess over, which is Iris. Mm-hmm. And when he goes into her room for the first time, she's got candles. It's like she's a saint or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Again, with the, I mean, he called Betsy an angel. But so there's a sort of... With Iris, he gets pissed. 
when she doesn't live up to what he expects mm-hmm. her to act like. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that complex is very interesting and mm-hmm. still extremely relevant. And that's one of the main reasons I really enjoy this movie. Yeah. And like Jodie Foster said, this film has like a moral center to it, which doesn't side with Travis. However, at the end, when you see that he's hailed as a hero, that specifically, I think, really highlights the dangers of that kind of personality yeah. and what they are aiming for and who they become. Not to mention yeah. that yeah, De Niro's fantastic in it. Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, what would y'all rate this movie? Miles, you first. Okay, I'll go first. Now, knowing what I know about it, <laughs> it, it does genuinely you know, make me um, sad. Uh that being said, it is a very good movie. It is uh, a very good cautionary tale for men specifically. Cinematography, good. Audio, good. My boys cut, good. Fire. Fire, absolutely fire. The I'm sure this movie inspired a lot of bomber jackets to be worn. <laughs> a lot of mohawks to be a worn. A lot of mohawks. So I'm going to give it... Eight uh, apple cheese pies out of ten. Okay, it's really good. I I do fear that some men watching it. I was gonna try and make sense with you. <laughs> yeah, again, I think just as long as you don't have the issue that Travis has, where you you lack the self awareness to know where you're going, this movie shouldn't be an issue. So if you watch this movie and you feel inspired, then get some help. Reach out to your friends and family and resources and uh, mental health awareness, you know? We live in trying times with media and internet. And it's okay. It's a, it's a struggle. What would you rate it? I would give it 9 out of 10. Oh, boy. There's so many options. There's so many slurs I could say. Yeah. 9 out of 10 hands over the open stove top he did do that yeah uh yeah for everything that i said i'm gonna give it nine late for the skies by jackson browns out mm-hmm. of ten um i didn't talk about that but late for the sky by jackson Browns is one of my favorite all-time songs yeah. and to hear it in this context is very funny with a very sad travis pickle I, I, that always bit, a joy I mean, that fits like sad because he's so it's so sad like i know it's like he's a twisted man but it's like watching like a dog that like attacks people because it's it doesn't know and it's scared and it's just you feel bad. Yeah, it's a, you know, uh, it saddens it's you. It's like yeah, but like old yellers got to get put down, you know. <laughs> okay. Anyway, those are our ratings. Those are our thoughts. What did you guys think? Let us know. You can email us at thatakesadoka@gmail.com or on social media if you'd like. Hey, Miles. Sorry, yeah? I'm stimming. What what what's our next episode gonna be? Oh my gosh! Goodness me! Oh, We're, it's oh, is that a spooky ghost I hear? Oh my goodness! Are we going to be in October? We are going to be October. This is uh, <laughs> my episode is going to be released on October first, so it's officially spooky season. Woo-hoo. We're going to be starting it off with a little. Would it really be October first? Yeah. yeah. Huh. A little. Uh, I dare. I dare not say it three times. <gasps> but we're going to be watching. Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice? Beetle goose? We're we're safe. Thank God you didn't say Beetlejuice. (gasps) Oh, he's here. Oh, he's here. Oh, God. I'm here for the dark (laughs) joke. Yeah, I've never actually seen Beetlejuice. Oh, really? Never seen it. I've seen the first little part, and they're digging up a grave, but the grave is like 
AstroTurf. Like, like, Ari Bird yeah, and AstroTurf. Yeah. And I was like, all oh, right, this is weird. And then I one. left. It, it, is, it is good. And I'm glad because I can do the voice. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to researching it. And I'm looking forward to sharing what I found out with you guys. Cool. Cool. Cool, cool. Well, until then, you can follow us on social media, which I just dropped, but I'll drop it again. Our email is thetakesatuck at gmail.com if you want to send us any suggestions, anything that I got wrong in today's episode, any requests for future episodes. And uh, make sure you follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at the takes it took. But until then, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and uh, don't don't stalk women. Yeah, don't do that. It's not really How a good move. How long have I been sleeping? How long have I been drifting alone through the night? Okay. Bye. 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 I really want to kill John Lennon. <laughs> One day a rain's gonna come for you guys. <laughs>